Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Macharco. This is George Macharco, host of DC Entrepreneur here on WERA 96.7 FM. Today I'm in the studio with Chris Brockmuller. He is the Chief Product Officer for Fundrise. Fundrise is a real estate investment startup located in the Washington, D.C. area. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So Chris, talk to me about the background of Fundrise, how it started up, and what you all do. Sure thing. So Fundrise is an online real estate investment platform uh, started in 2012. Uh, Ben Miller is a co-founder and CEO of Fundrise and he was, uh, I would say, the genesis for the the um, the original idea, I guess you'd say, for the company as um, as we know it now. He and he and his brother Dan. So they're doing small real estate developments in D.C. 2009, 2010, 2011. They want to move into like Eighth Street or or other emerging neighborhoods, and the capital from their traditional capital partners just isn't there. The the traditional capital players, the private equity firms, or um, other institutions who are um, who are basically the the normal guys who help um, put money into real estate projects because the the developer is very rarely um, the only guy providing capital on a deal. They weren't really seeing the vision for the neighborhood. So they uh, Ben Ben had this problem right where he saw an opportunity to make good investments, but the capital wasn't there because the um, the counterparty the other the, the other people who he would normal um, normally partner with just didn't see the vision for the neighborhood. So Fundrise was really born from this idea basically that. The people who live in cities uh, should ultimately be able to invest in cities too, and um, to hopefully um, be able to to earn a return or to um, to you know realize financial gain from what to us is um, is a very strong historically strong investment, and and to basically participate in I would say economic uh, value creation through through development of property. And I'd say there's a there's an urban flavor to that, um, like a, a city based flavor. But there's that's kind of I think that that vision is expanded because now we're doing we're we're basically investing all over the country. We're investing in urban areas. We're investing in suburban areas. But the common thread being that we're investing where people want to be. Um, it's ultimately a story about people, and it's about a story about knowing where um, where people want to be, and knowing what they want to be in, in the sense of like the the product, you know. Um, Whatever that may be, for sale housing or apartments or um, or or retail or what have you, but it's ultimately about where people are going and where they want to be, um, and, and investing ahead of that, and and allowing anybody to to participate, allowing anyone who's um, who basically is interested and is willing to um, to invest some uh, money, but we're you know with a with a low minimum. To be able to participate. So let's talk about that for a second, because I think traditionally this type of real estate investment was mostly open to accredited investor. Mm-hmm. So now it's open to just anyone that wants to invest in in urban real estate. Um, yes. So you do not have to be an accredited investor to invest on the Fundrise platform, um, and that's actually a consequence of the Jobs Act, which um, Obama passed, I believe, in 2012. Um, and then I believe it was promulgated, so it basically came into effect um, in, in 2013. But before that, um, if I didn't know you, 
and I wanted to raise money to raise, um, to invest in a deal with me, you would have to be what the SEC calls, Securities Exchange Commission calls an accredited investor, which is a person who has um, some minimum requirements on income or net worth. Um, and so the Jobs Act allowed us to basically um, move beyond that limitation and to accept investment from anyone um, who had, in, in our case, um, originally $1,000 and now $500 um, and, and is a U.S. resident. And otherwise, um, the only restriction being that they can't contribute more than 10% of their their income or net worth in a year. So it was a huge, um, basically opening up mm-hmm. of the access to that type of capital, that smaller, um, basically smaller um, investors as well as smaller capital raisers could connect um, in that way. It was completely just a game changer for the way we were able to grow our business. Yeah. What's interesting about that to me is that it also happened around the same time that you saw this explosion in crowdfunding for a lot of startups Mm -hmm. and for a lot of projects and um, even, you know, creative projects like films and things. Sure. Like on Kickstarter. So is there a parallel there? Um, I think there's a parallel in the sense that the internet has created this just you know crazy multiplying factor on um, on everything. So it, it connects people um, people and I guess capital in ways that were previously impossible. I mean even with uh, even with the regulatory changes that the Jobs Act brought about. I mean doing that business right with paper <laughs> would be ridiculous. Trying to manage that in a traditional way, not online, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so in that way, I would say um, there's a parallel to the extent that there's the the that increased connectivity that the internet has brought about, um, you know, that they, they kind of go, um, they go alongside one another in that way. So talk to me about the investment approach. Like, what are you investing in? Are these like mixed use developments? Are these like urban centers? Are they just buildings themselves? Like what, what exactly does that look like? So we have quite a diversified portfolio of different types of investments we're making. Um, I'd say the, the common thread, um, and actually I'll, I'll, I could, list off a few of the different types of deals we're doing, but to, uh, to take a few examples. So um, we're looking at uh, in in the Southeast United States, we will go in and, and directly, you know, and purchase a, um, a, a, a kind of like a garden apartment style community um, where that's maybe it's been around for a little longer, um, maybe not uh, the apartments inside are a little bit out of date, but the building's really solid, and we'll go in and do value add, do renovations, okay. um, and that'll allow basically us to drive drive the value of the property through basically making it more competitive and being able to charge more competitive rents, right? So that's one, um, all the way through to um, something like the Elysium 14 on uh, on um, 14th Street in D.C., which is like your classic example of like a an urban mixed-use sort of retail investment mm-hmm. Um, in LA in particular, Los Angeles, we see a tremendous amount of opportunity just with the unique uh, demographic factors in that city at play. But um, a few different things we're doing there, um, working with folks who are entitling land to basically upzone it for higher density usage. So we'll actually go in and invest in projects like that, where you're taking what maybe once was like two or three uh, parcels of land, which each are like have a, a single family home, just a one story home, combining those three parcels together and then subdividing it to build like 18 or 20 new homes there. So multi-unit dwellings, basically, for a lot of these mm-hmm. these projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that uh, housing is probably the is, as far as a product type is the, the most you know common thread. Mm-hmm. But I think the real the real thing is basically is around potential and around value add. Mm-hmm. So it's around places where we can go in and, and through either through physical work like renovations or through um, through legal work like entitlement 
or um, or basically through ba- letting the market basically act on our behalf around us that um, we're that there's basically an opportunity for a, a lot of value add that we can see um, and where we can basically, to the extent that we can make smart investment decisions and work hard, um, can affect that value add. Are you seeing that the trend of urbanization is happening nationwide still at this point? Because it seems like there's been this wave of redevelopment for a lot of cities. Um, but has it cooled off? Because I'm starting to see that it looks like there's, you know, there's almost peak construction. Like you're not seeing as many cranes up anymore. Um, you're not seeing kind of the same types of projects anymore. Has everything cooled off or is the market still kind of moving in that direction? So I think there's, um, like anything, there's there's nuance there. Mm-hmm. But certainly in um, in you know New York, for example, yeah. um, or even I think DC, uh, there's still quite a lot of construction going on. But to us, um, pricing has gotten really high. Yeah. Um, it's really difficult to invest in some of the like top five major metro markets now to come into where we are at this phase in the market and um, and basically target what we think is an attractive risk adjusted return because there's the asset prices are just through the roof. Yeah. Um, construction costs are high, land costs are high. And there are people who are willing basically to take um, what, what we think is basically a lower, you know, lower return than they should be willing to take. And so we're basically not, um, we're not really feeling like it's, uh, we're competing that, uh, or we don't want to compete um, in, in that type of situation. Okay. So are you going to like mid-market cities now? To some extent, yes. Okay. Um, so, so LA obviously being the exception there mm-hmm. because LA is just to us a unique animal, and there's so many cool things going on in LA. Um, it's it's just it's so big, um, yeah. and in the housing supply there is just so constrained. Right. Um, they but don't have you, the density really. They it's don't have the density. Vast and kind of sprawled out. Right. Yeah. It, just, it covers the whole valley, and it's mm-hmm. this like you know basically a lot of single family homes. But um, even where there is a little bit higher density, it's lower than you would see like in DC, for example. Um, and they're just it's just so big. Yeah. Um, but yes, um, to answer your earlier question, basically we we are going into um, what you might call secondary markets, right? So we've done a lot of investing in Florida, for example, um, which is growing. The population in Flor- growth in Florida is just is crazy. I mean, it's it's growing so quickly, um, and you can see that thread throughout the. I mean, the Sun Belt, basically, if you will. Um, Sort of with LA being the the west anchor of that, and sort of the Georgia, South Carolina, some of those coastal areas. Um, Savannah, we recently had a, a, a rather large portfolio acquisition there too, um, and so I think the the theme to some extent um, more recently is people leaving the north um, and 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 migrating south. Um, and, and you can see that in the um, manifest basically in the population um, changes year over year from, you know, who are the biggest gainers and who are the biggest losers um, in terms of population. I mean, like the Midwest is just not growing. Right. And you don't see us doing a lot of investing there mm-hmm. um, for that reason, because, again, going back to my earlier point, um, we want to be where the people are going. Yeah. Um, and, and those if you're paying attention to those trends, um, it's it's pretty clear where um, basically where people are moving and where we think they'll be going over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Yeah. I think what's also interesting, too, is that you're giving a chance for really a generation to invest in real estate that has been kind of locked out of that, that Mm -hmm. hasn't been able to afford their own properties, in essence. A lot of times they rent in an apartment, but they're able to reinvest in some of these, these areas by having kind of like a piece of the action, right? I mean, ultimately, we... um, if you wanted to try to sum it all up, I mean, we want to make it so that every individual um, can basically 
access the highest quality real estate investments in in a self-directed manner. They can they can basically act on their own behalf, um, come to us, and and we can serve um, basically serve as their um, their location for where they're going. You know, their platform mm-hmm. um, for where they can invest in um, real estate and specifically real estate. Um, via the private market as opposed to um, investing in like a public REIT, for example. Um, so it, it, to us, that's it's a much closer parallel to owning your own property, to having your name on the title, um, w- without obviously the, the, active, the, ma- the active management required there. Um, but it has some, some of the same benefits. Yeah. You wouldn't necessarily have to have somebody that, you know, is a property manager <laughs> in essence, right? Well, correct. Yeah. I mean, we're doing, we're, we're completely vertically integrated. I mean, you're, the whole idea is that it's a, it's a completely passive investment for you. Um, and we're doing all the active work on your behalf and, and we're keeping all that active work or as much of it as we can, is economically feasible for us under one roof. So we have as much control over the process, basically from the time the, the money leaves your bank account till it goes into the property and comes back out. That's all ba- to the extent that we can keep as much of that under our under our purview. Yeah. Um, we think that's um, that's ultimately going to be a superior model. So, Chris, what's Fundrise's investment approach? So, um, I think I spoke a little bit about um, earlier how we think about um, basically investing in real estate and looking for opportunities to to add value and to control that value add. Um, but there's also just this um, what I'd say is like a, a structural difference, right, between investing in uh, real estate via the private market as opposed to uh, in in public REITs or really that matter for public stocks or bonds. Um, and, and to us, um, that's you know, our thesis, which are you know, over, over a period of time, that thesis will ultimately um, be proven to hold water and not to hold water, but we, we think is a, a strong one, um, is basically that they're, um, in, in, the, in the public markets, right, um, the information is perfect. So you have, um, there's a school of thought basically that's very popular right now when it comes to investing that you should basically be indexing because there's no way to outperform the market, right? So um, that's sort of this, um, that's where ETFs or index funds were born out of. Um, and that's why you see guys like, I mean, I see the ads on TV all the time. It's like, uh, you know, Schwab and Vanguard and Ameritrade, they're all basically in a race to the bottom. There's this, I'd say, prevailing school of thought that there's no way to outperform the market. Mm-hmm. So you should just invest in the market. Um, and so um, to, to to some extent, we agree with that. We think that's true when you're talking, but the, the nuance there is that we're talking about the public market, mm-hmm. right? So so the thesis is basically that um, they're in, in the public market, information is perfect, right? The, 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 the advent of the internet um, and basically the, the mass communications we have available to us, along with all the crazy trading tools and everything, I mean, everyone basically has information parity. Um, it's so efficient that it is, in fact, very difficult to outperform um, the public market when you're investing in publicly traded stocks and bonds. Um, it's in, uh, you know, you, there there are probably people who would still, to some extent, disagree with that. But that's the sort of the prevailing school of thought mm-hmm. um, as it comes to investing today. And if you look at really uh, even the robo advisor, kind of the advent of those guys, where they're. Um, they're, you know, if you if you go sign up with one of them, they're basically putting you into a pool of ETFs, and they're not they're not really claiming um, or or trying to sell you on the value proposition of them having some kind of like special, um, basically special like investment philosophy that's going to outperform the market through like them actively picking investments. Effectively, they're they're indexing 
Um, they're indexing according to some risk parameters you give them, and their value add is basically doing the stuff that um, is a little bit maybe hard for you to do as an individual, like the like tax loss harvesting, for example, um, and rebalancing. Like they kind of take care of that stuff for you, and then they do that for a really low fee. Um, but nowhere in there really is there a message about like we actually think we can get alpha, right? Um, on the contrary, from what we see. In the private market, information is extremely inefficient. Pricing is not in real time. Trades are not happening, you know, th- millions of times a day or, or, you know, intraday and, or even, you know, down to the micro. People are worried about the microsecond, their latency from the, the high frequency trading. I mean, that's sort of it being taken to its logical. It's like the Flash Boys <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of concept, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so actually, on the contrary, though, is like in the private market, information um, asymmetry is really, really common and it's, it's the norm. Um, so you actually can with, uh, or we believe you can with the right Intel, basically, um, to you can get alpha. Um, and you can do that by, by knowing markets intimately, by knowing people intimately, um, people being the, both the demographic, uh, you know, the people in your city, but also the, the sponsors and the real estate people you're working with. So let's talk about that for a second. So what is the difference between the public and private real estate markets? So um, when you're investing in a public REIT, for example, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, I think that um, using using the um, the framework of time is actually probably the best way to think about this. Okay. So um, when you're investing in, the, in a public REIT, you're investing in what are very like late stage real estate assets is one way to think about it. So um, you're investing in a finished product where a lot of the like, basically a lot of the risk to some extent, but but not really. It's a different kind of risk because a lot of it depends on the the in, like prevailing interest rate conditions. Sure. But a lot of the uncertainty, or, or but also you could see a lot of the potential has been um, has basically been baked out of the project. You're investing in the finished thing. So if you go look at like I don't know um, Starwood or one of the big REITs, um, one of the big office ones, for example, they're you know they're they're the kind of prime office buildings. Or retail centers, or, or whatever, um, and they're they're big shiny buildings downtown, and they're done. They're completed buildings. Mm-hmm. They're leased up, um, and they're basically, um, in technical real estate terms, they're sort of stabilized um, deals, right? Re- buildings, um, and so. The difference between that sort of model, that that being the primary type of asset you're investing in, and what we're doing is we're investing, or when you're investing with us, you have the opportunity to invest in, more. I would say, more early stage real estate assets. So this uh, is like pre-leasing period? This is like, could be like, it's an empty piece of land that we're entitling oh. to build new homes okay. on. It could be, uh, like I talked about earlier, the apartment building that needs renovation, right? It's mm-hmm. um, We're buying it and we're going to put work into it um, to, to basically make it more competitive. It could be construction so ground up like basically building a brand new um, uh, set of condos or apartments but you're you're basically investing earlier in the business cycle um, or in the business plan where there's more of a potential to add value um, and more of a I would say more of a, um, I'd say you as a um, as a as the person deploying the money you have the ability to um, to basically have agency over the performance of your investments, either through um, buying correctly, which is a lot of it, but also through the hard work that you put in yourself or selecting a really good partner who's going to put in that hard work to make those improvements or renovations to the property. Um, that's ultimately where the where the, the, the alpha, we think, comes from, the, the outsized return. 
one other thing I wanted to ask too is like, do you have a certain amount of reserve capital for a project when something could happen, you know, where like the real estate conditions or market turns and goes south? The the short answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but ultimately that's going to depend on the project structure. Yeah. So a lot of times with um, where we're doing uh, development, basically where we're um, either lending to construction or basically financing um, construction or, or, or some other early stage value creation, we're, um, we're basically acting as the bank, so to speak. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases, we're providing um, we're providing a loan. So we're um, we're committing a fixed amount of capital, which um, which is basically entitled to a fixed rate of return. The same yeah. way that when you buy a house, um, you're borrowing from you know Bank of America or Wells Fargo at three or four percent. Um, in our case, you're buy- borrowing from us at what could be you know eight or ten percent because of the nature of the project. One of the things that interests me about the product is that you can get exposure to private real estate for a pretty low amount. What does that look like for the, the typical investor? That is a, a diversified portfolio of real estate assets that's nationwide that's managed directly by us and that fits um, our our investment parameters for um, kind of that that opportunistic um, value add op- um, creation you know value creation that we um, that we look for when we when we make investments so is that like class a stock like in a project I mean, how, how does that work like what does it look like whenever you you purchase five hundred dollars say or upwards of that. Sure. So, um, if you want to get into like the the nuts and bolts of it, you're actually investing in um, a portfolio of funds. Okay. Um, those funds. It's so like a fund of funds. Sure. So, um, when you invest, whether it's five hundred dollars, whether it's five thousand dollars, or five hundred thousand um, dollars, ultimately, you are investing in directly into, on average, I would say between four and six. Uh, funds that Fundrise manages. Mm -hmm. And those funds, um, so basically you're purchasing common stock, common shares in those funds. And those funds are actually uh, what are going out and making the real estate investments. Let's talk about the uh, investment in Fundrise itself. So you're a tech startup. You're based out of Washington, D.C. You've had to raise capital as a startup. I've had uh, Casey Berman from Camber Creek, who was an investor in Fundrise on the show. Can you just talk to me about the approach that Fundrise has gone to create investment in its own company? As I spoke before, the, the Jobs Act um, really did open up the opportunity basically for capital formation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've, uh, we've always really admired Vanguard um, and their sort of investor-owned model. So our long-term philosophy has always been um, if you can basically make your investor, um, and when I say investor, I mean our platform investor, our retail investor, if you can make them your owner too, um, then you don't have to serve two masters. You can ultimately always act in, on behalf of the the individual investor um, and what's in their best interests. So once uh, basically we saw that we had uh, both the, the regulatory means, but also the the product market fit, right? We um, we saw a, a tremendous amount of growth uh, once we launched the non-accredited, basically we opened it up to non-accredited investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, once we saw we had the product market fit and, and the, the regulatory means, we, um, to us, it, it just made perfect sense that we would uh, basically finance our growth of the company from those who are also investing in um, in our platform, who are customers of the platform. If you if, if the the, dis- the distinction between investor and uh, being a little you know if that's not clear. So, are you still investing in DC, or is it now just other cities at this point? Um, we have we have done some investments in DC recently. Um, we have a 
um, a loan on a new construction project in Shaw um, over by basically the, the, the entrance of the Shaw U Street Metro. I think it's at about 9th and U down there. Um, and we have been doing some single family home investments in DC too. So um, both purchasing single family homes and renovating them as well as, um, as, well as uh, doing condo conversions. We have a few of those as well. Um, but uh, not quite to the volume of where we maybe were a few years ago. Touch me about the tech behind Fundrise. Like, how does that work? We've built everything in-house. It's all proprietary um, from everything from our iPhone app, which we launched in April, all the way to like the the automated investment processing that runs in the background um, every every few hours, basically to um, to look at the orders, um, the, the accounting software that moves money, basically from from folks' accounts into the funds that handles everything from like the dividend distributions to figuring out what you owe on your taxes. We basically we bring all that in house, um, and it's this incredibly sophisticated, um, robust set of both front and back, uh, basically back of house systems. Um, that allow us to operate a really, really lean, um, you know, uh, model on the side of the on the investment management side of things. I mean, like to take one example, our you know we tax we generate all of our 1099s, our tax documents um, in house every year. We have a team of people who does that, and the amount of of just like insane complex execution of bringing together the accounting team and the um, the engineers to like to literally generate like tens of thousands this year it'll probably be more than 100,000 1099 documents and to get them done right and to get them done on time um it's both like something we could have only done in-house um, because working with any like third party would just either be in- insanely expensive or um, or maybe they just told us they couldn't be done. Um, but but ultimately, I mean, it, I just think it adds this um, it adds an insane amount of value to the business. Yeah. That's uh, Chris Berkmuller. He is the chief product officer from Fundrise. Chris, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. We'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur.